Open your Bibles, if you have them, to Matthew chapter 26. Matthew 26, we're going to be in verses 30 to 35 this morning. Matthew 26, 30 to 35. Read with me, starting in verse 30. And when they had sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. And Jesus said to them, You will all fall away because of me this night. For it is written, I will strike the shepherd, and the sheep of the flock will be scattered. But after I am raised up, I will go before you to Galilee. Peter answered him, Though they all fall away because of you, I will never fall away. Jesus said to him, Truly I tell you, this very night before the rooster crows, you will deny me three times. Peter said to him, Even if I must die with you, I will not deny you. And all the disciples said the same. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, this text is here before us for a reason. You know, every heart in this room, including my own, I pray that what is said, what is thought about, what is understood from this text Speak directly to every individual in this room. Give us understanding. Give us wisdom that we may see what is here, understand it, and apply it to our lives in Jesus' name. Amen. This passage that's, that's sitting in front of us is, is really pretty short, but there's a, there's a good bit of background that goes behind this passage that goes all the way through the Gospel of Matthew that I think we need to understand in order to really make sense of this passage. It's very easy to understand on the surface. If you're just looking at the passage, Jesus tells them they're going to fall away, and he warns them of that. They say they're not, and then we end the passage, essentially. It seems on the surface, it's pretty straightforward. I got it. But there's a reason why this passage is included in this spot. Matthew certainly could have just shown Jesus going to the cross and the disciples running away. But he didn't. He actually told us that there was a prophecy that Jesus gave to the disciples up front that helped them understand what is about to happen. And so what we want to do is understand why Matthew put this here to help us make sense of what he's trying to tell us, that it might speak to us in one way or another. Jesus if you'll remember, comes on to the scene of ministry in the book of Matthew about halfway through chapter 4. Before then, he's an infant, and he's kind of running from the authorities and things like that, and then he comes on to the scene halfway through chapter 4, and he's proclaiming the kingdom of heaven is at hand. That's the first thing he does. He comes onto the scene, he starts telling everybody the kingdom of heaven is at hand, and immediately after that, he begins healing people, but he preaches, starting in chapter 5, all the way to chapter 7, a sermon that we call the Sermon on the Mount. And I cannot emphasize enough how important the Sermon on the Mount from Matthew 5 to 7 is for understanding the rest of the book of Matthew. Virtually all the themes and all the points that Matthew is making in the rest of the book all come down and are made in that sermon. And you'll remember that Jesus starts off the Sermon on the Mount with that first beatitude, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. 
Turns out in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus is defining what citizenship looks like in his kingdom. He's saying in the midway through chapter 4, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And then in chapter 5, here's what it looks like for you to be a citizen of my kingdom. And he starts off with, blessed are the poor in spirit. In other words, citizens of my kingdom are poor in spirit. When we went through the Sermon on the Mount, I went through week by week, line by line, through the Beatitudes. One sermon on each Beatitude. That's how come it's taken us 800 weeks to get through this far in the book of Matthew. But we went line by line through the Beatitudes. And when you take a close, closer look at Matthew 5.3, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. What you come to realize is that what spiritual poverty, being poor in spirit, what that actually means is that you're completely dependent upon God for your citizenship in the kingdom of, of heaven. That there's no other way that you come to be a citizen in the kingdom of heaven except that you are relying totally on the Lord. As a poor person, a beggar, would rely on others to provide, you have a poverty of spirit that would rely on God to give you your status in the kingdom. So essentially, being poor in spirit is realizing that you're in a free fall. And that God has every right to allow you to simply hit the ground, to crash and burn. He's perfectly justified to let you hit the ground. And what that does is it brings you down to a lowly position where you realize that everything that you've got inside the kingdom of God is given to you by Him. You are completely impoverished and He has given you everything. So I'm spiritually poor because I have no claim to the kingdom of heaven whatsoever. But Jesus says, to such a one belongs the kingdom of heaven. Meaning that through Christ, God has reached out and caught you in your free fall. Though he didn't have to. To such a one belongs the kingdom of heaven. Because their inclusion in the kingdom of heaven is dependent entirely on Jesus. They believe it is of no consequence of their own choosing. It is entirely on Jesus who provides them entry. And so he goes on in the Sermon on the Mount then to detail what that poverty of spirit actually looks like in the life of someone else. like How it actually fleshes itself out. This person lays up treasure in heaven where moth and rust won't corrode. They trust entirely on God to provide everything. They look around at the things that they, the basic needs that they have for life, like food and clothing, and they don't trust themselves to even provide for those things. They ask the Lord to provide those things. They trust completely on God to provide even their most basic needs of life. This person does to others as she wishes others would do to her. In spite of how she might be treated... She responds in a way that she wishes others would respond to her. He builds his life on the rock of the Scripture's teaching, trusting that God alone has the right to govern our lives and how we act and how we respond. So for a disciple who is dependent on God for everything, you need to understand 
his own physical life is of no consequence. Think about that for just a second. His own physical life is of no consequence. It means very little. So Jesus will say to his disciples in Matthew 10, 37-39, Whoever loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever does not take his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Whoever finds his life will lose it. And whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. You understand what Jesus is doing here in this this passage. He's challenging his disciples. He's saying, here is the bar for discipleship, for citizenship in my kingdom. The bar for citizenship is that your life is of no consequence. That you would risk your own life in order to follow Christ. This is the level of dependence that Jesus is demanding from his disciples. That spiritual poverty. Let the weight of that command, that thought, hit you for just a second. That's the bar of discipleship. That even my own life, my own physical life, has only the meaning that Jesus gives it. No more, no less. Food, wealth, family associations, even the way that I would die is entirely up to Jesus. My life is to be used entirely for His calling. So Jesus is going to refer to all of these His disciples as children and as little ones. He's going to call them children, and he's going to call them little ones. We see an example of this in Matthew eleven twenty five to 26. At that time, Jesus declared, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and understanding and revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for such was your gracious will. Now, now remind, he, he's talking to adults here. He's not talking to kids. He's talking to adults. He's talking about adults. These adults, these little ones, why does he call them little ones? Why does he call them little children? Because they are dependent upon him for everything, much like children are. We see another example of this in Matthew 18, verses 3 to 4. Truly I say to you, unless you turn and become like children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Whoever humbles himself like this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. He's not telling them that children are innocent. Amen? I think anybody that's been around them understands that all too well. He's not saying that children are innocent. That's, that's mostly how you'll hear that verse interpreted. You have childlike faith. Children are, are innocent. That, that's not true. That's not what he's saying. He's saying you have to turn and become like children. He's applying the same concept as being poor in spirit. You have nothing. That's how you're like a child. Whoever humbles himself like this child. He's talking about humility. It's poverty of spirit, becoming like children, like little ones, being humbled like this child. It's all the same metaphor that Jesus is using to explain discipleship in his kingdom. What is it actually like? What does it actually look like? 
Well, it looks like a child with their parent. You're dependent entirely on Him for your inclusion in the kingdom of heaven. Without Jesus providing it, you have none of it. In other words, you have no claim to true discipleship by your own strength, but only when you're completely dependent on Christ are you actually a disciple of His. So these are the concepts that I want you to keep in mind. Themes that run through the Gospel of Matthew. Childlike dependence. I think that's a better phrase than childlike faith. Childlike faith seems to indicate innocence and you need to just stay immature and things like that. That's not what we're saying. Childlike dependence. That's what we're going after. That's the phrase to keep in mind as it runs through, this theme runs through the Gospel of Matthew. Childlike dependence on Christ for everything. And so I think that actually sets us up really nicely to understand what's about to happen in our passage this morning in the lives of the disciples. What Jesus is actually telling them. And it, and it helps us to understand the appalling nature of Peter's response to Jesus after he's told what he's told. First, I, I want you to look at Jesus' sovereign plan that happens here, starting in verse 30. Look at it. And when they had sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. And Jesus said to them, You will fall away because of me this night. <clears throat> For it is written, I will strike the shepherd, and the sheep of the flock will be scattered. But after I am raised up, I will go before you to Galilee. Now, the hymn that they sing here in verse 30 is very clearly Psalm 118. They've just finished the, the, what we call the Lord's Supper, a Passover meal. And throughout the Passover meal, they would sing uh, the Psalms one, from 113 all the way to 118. And so they finish the meal of the Passover. They sing Psalm 118, which tells us a couple things. First of all, it tells us the Passover meal is over. And now there, it also gives us a transition to a new location out on the Mount of Olives, which is close by. So they, they go up to the Mount of Olives, and it gives us sort of the setting of the events that happen next, including all the way up to Jesus' arrest. But while they're on the Mount of Olives, Jesus gives them this sort of ominous prediction. He tells them, you're all going to fall away from me this night. You're all going to fall away because of me this night. Now, we've seen numerous times of late where Jesus gives these little predictions, and we're going to see them come true. But the real question is, why are these included in the gospel? Why do we hear the private conversations that Jesus has with the disciples where he tells them what's going to happen? Well, John actually tells us why he's included these things, why John includes these things, why all the gospel writers include these things in John 14, 29. And now I have told you before it takes place so that when it does take place, you may believe. So Jesus is telling these events to the disciples what's about to happen. Why? So that whenever they happen, the disciples may realize, oh, Jesus actually not only knew these things were going to take place, but he's, he's in control of these things. These all still fall within his sovereign plan. We spent a lot of time on that last week, but it, it, it calls to mind this prediction that Jesus is making of his death several times. And he's predicted, even in the previous passage, Judas' betrayal. He's now predicting the disciples are going to flee, they're going to run away. He's also predicting Peter is going to deny him three times. And in fact, what we're going to see in the Gospel of Matthew is that Judas is going to come. The next thing that's going to happen is Judas is going to come bringing the people with him, the authorities with him to arrest Jesus. Then the disciples are going to flee. And then Peter is going to deny Jesus three times. 
And so the reader of the gospel, as we read through the account that's being laid out for us, we hear these predictions that are made by Jesus. Why? So that we may have comfort knowing that all of these are still within the sovereign hand of the Lord. Not only did he know it was going to happen, he has decreed it. But then Jesus adds this little thing to his prediction. See this? Where he says, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep of the flock will be scattered. It comes from Zechariah 13.7. Jesus just throws in this little quote from Zechariah 13.7. And I think this is a tremendously important quote and message from Jesus again to the disciples and to us reading it as to what is actually taking place here. The quote, as I said, is from Zechariah 13, 7. And I want to read verses 7 to 9 there of Zechariah. So focus with me here for just a second. Zechariah 13, 7 to 9. Awake, O sword, against my shepherd, against the man who stands next to me, declares the Lord of hosts. Strike the shepherd, and the sheep will be scattered. I will turn my hand against, who is it? The little one. In the whole land, declares the Lord, two-thirds shall be cut off and perish, and one-third shall be left. Listen to this. And I will put this third, that is the third that's left, into the fire and refine them as one refined silver and test them as gold is tested. They will call upon my name and I will answer them. I will say they are my people. And they will say, the Lord is my God. So, this is God himself in Zechariah 13. He's talking to his own sword. He's talking to the sword of judgment. And he's, he's saying to the sword, Awake, O sword, against my own shepherd. In other words, he's going to strike his own shepherd with his sword of judgment. And so the end of the book of Zechariah, and you can go back and read it later, we won't read all of it, but you can go back and read it later, chapters 9 to, 13, or 9 to 4, through 14, all talk about a, a time that is coming. That is, Zechariah is looking to the future and saying, this is what the Lord is going to do. And what he's describing there in Zechariah is that this coming judgment that is coming on the nation of Israel is going to essentially dissolve in Israel down to its bare bones. You can see in the passage that we read how he's going to strip away two-thirds and he's going to throw them in the fire. Not, not in the fire of purification, but in, in, in the garbage. And then the other third he's going to take and he's going to purify that nation. And he says that there's going to be a point where the nation of Israel is going to be actually restored to prominence and Israel's going to be fearsome in the eyes of its enemies. So it's not only going to be restored and purified, but everyone around them is going to be in awe of what the Lord has done here, essentially. And the question is, when will this day be? Well, if you back up a chapter from where Jesus quoted in 13.7, you back up a chapter into chapter 12. We see this in Zechariah 12.10. And I will pour out on the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem a spirit of grace and pleas for mercy. So that when they look on me, on him who they, whom they have pierced, they shall mourn for him as one mourns for an only child and weep bitterly over him as one weeps over a firstborn. Does that sound familiar? 
So essentially, there will be a day, he says, when a future king will come. How do we know this is a king? Well, he says there, I will pour out on the house of David and all the inhabitants of Jerusalem the spirit of grace and pleas for mercy, so that when they look on me, this is the Lord speaking, when they look on me, and then he switches and he says, on him whom they have pierced. So this is both God, or somebody that is close to God, and on him they have pierced, who is also different. Well, typically in, in Jewish language, that's the king that's reserved for that place, who is God's son. Well, here they have someone who is God and who is also other, who is pierced. He's a king of the line of David, and he's going to be pierced by his own people. And it's at that point that when he's pierced for, by his own people that the nation will mourn and weep bitterly, it says. So this event is going to bring about a period of repentance in the nation of Israel. Now he goes on in the next chapter, just before the passage Jesus quotes in Zechariah 13.1. On that day, there shall be a fountain opened for the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem to cleanse them from sin and uncleanness. So how does this come about? Well, in the context, people will pierce their king. But then when we get to the passage that Jesus quoted, God is talking to his own sword. He says, Awake, O sword, against my shepherd. He's implying that he's going to strike the shepherd with his own sword of judgment. And he says, I will turn my hand against the little one. So in the prophecy of Zechariah, God is the one bringing about salvation for His little ones first by testing them. By striking the king with His sword of judgment. They also are going to join in this by piercing their own shepherd. But who's doing the piercing? Is it God doing the piercing? Or is it the nation of Israel doing the piercing? Who's striking the shepherd here? He says, they will kill the shepherd, but then he also says, Yahweh is going to kill the shepherd with his sword of judgment. Reminds me of the sermon that Peter preached in Acts 22. This is, or Acts 2, 22, in, at Pentecost, where he says, Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and with wonders and signs that God did through you in the mi- in, in, through him in your midst, as you yourselves know. This Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. Plan and foreknowledge of God. You crucified and killed at the hands of lawless men. Was it according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, or was it crucified and killed by the hands of men? The answer is yes. It's both. God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death, because it was not possible for him to be held by it. The point is that we've seen the predictions of Jesus and we'll be comforted when they come true, obviously, by the thought that all these events have been known by God for some time. They've been in accordance with the plan and foreknowledge of God the whole time. And that will bring us comfort. But Jesus is telling his disciples, if they pause and listen for just a second, that this is obviously according to the sovereign plan of God, and it's been that way for a long time. In fact, John will will say to them later in the book of Revelation, 
That this lamb who is slain was slain before the foundation of the world. And what is the result of God striking His shepherd, Jesus? Well, Zechariah tells us, and Jesus tells us here, that the little ones are going to flee. But what's the purpose of the little ones fleeing? Well, when you go back to Zechariah, you realize what the little ones fleeing, what the purpose is, is for God to actually take them and purify them. See, they followed Jesus up to this point. They followed their king, and here Peter is saying, though they deny you, I never will deny you. That will never happen. But it turns out, when his own life is on the line, his resolve is not that strong. When it comes to facing certain death, now, think about that for just a second. Peter's seen the miracles. He saw Jesus walk on water. He walked on water himself. He saw Jesus multiply the bread for people. He was the one collecting what was left over in the baskets. The disciples saw all of these things happen. But when push came to shove and their life was on the line, none of those miracles mattered. What was the purpose? Zechariah tells us, for their purification. That when they run away and they see the sin that they're running towards, that will be the very thing that turns them around. In other words, when they're brought down to their lowest point, that's the point where they actually become disciples of Christ. And what does it make them say? The Lord is my God. But I want you to see the disciples' strength. Quote-unquote, strength. Starting in verse 33. Peter answered him, Though they all fall away because of you, I will never fall away. Jesus said to him, Truly I tell you, this very night before the rooster crows, you will deny me three times. Peter said to him, Even if I must die with you, I will not deny you. And the disciples, all the disciples, said the same. So, are you understanding, in light of what Jesus has just said, the brazen arrogance of what Peter has just come back with? Jesus is giving an age-old prophecy from the book of Zechariah. This is going to happen. He's just told them beforehand all of these things are going to take place, and slowly they are starting to take place. Jesus now turns to them and says, this is what's going to happen next, according to the prophecy in the book of Zechariah. And Peter is so brazen to say, whoa, 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 back the betrayal train up, not me. Though the rest of them may betray, he throws all ten of them under the bus. We think Judas is probably gone by this point. But all ten of them are, he throws under the bus and he says, look, all these other chumps may betray you, but not me. I love Peter. I love Peter because he is just so convinced that he can do it. That he's going to be the one where prophecy doesn't come true. He's the one. But before we criticize Peter too harshly, let's just first 
understand that he's actually been listening to Jesus' teaching all along. And Matthew has included these little snippets probably just so that we understand what Peter is actually saying here. He's gathering that Jesus is going to be arrested tonight. He knows that something's up. So first, he's understood at least that, that something is going to happen tonight. Jesus is going to be arrested. And so something significant is about to take place. But he's also listened to Jesus preach in, 11, in chapter 11, verse 6. He says, Jesus says this, Blessed is the one who is not offended by me. The word offended there in 11.6 is the same word as fall away in our passage. It's the same word. So essentially Peter is saying, though they are all offended by you, I will never be offended by you. They can be offended by you. I'm not going to be offended by you. He's heard Jesus say, look, this is the qualification for being a disciple. You can't be offended by me. And, Jesus, and Peter is saying, hey, I'm not offended by you. I am truly a disciple. He's heard Jesus in, in chapter 10, verse 32. So everyone who acknowledges me before men, I will acknowledge before my Father who is in heaven. But everyone who denies me before men, I will also deny before my Father who is in heaven. No, Jesus, you're mistaken. Even if I must die with you, Peter says, I will not deny you. He's been listening. There it is in chapter 10. He's saying here, look, I'm understanding what kind of sin that you've preached about. I want nothing to do with the deeds of darkness. I want to be your disciple. I am locked in, and he is determined by his own strength to persevere. Peter is a model of self-sufficiency. The phrase self-sufficiency in our culture is a good thing. We think of it as a good thing anyway. You, you want your children to be self-sufficient. It typifies the American ideal, the American experiment, right? To pick yourself up by your bootstraps, to be independent, to fight for your own living, start your own business, pay your own bills, and depend on no one. You are self-sufficient. And there's an aspect of that mentality that's actually good. We want to raise our children to be that, don't we? Don't you teach your kids how to grow up and actually, like, fly out of a nest? No. Isn't what you hope will happen? College students, first Sunday back, you know, you're flying from the nest, and your parents are going, yes! We want to teach our children's responsibility. However... When that transfers over to our relationship to Jesus, it becomes problematic. Peter is going to find out that although he is determined, he has a white-knuckled determinism, a self-sufficiency. I am going to do this. I am going, Jesus, I am going to obey your commands. What we're going to find is he lacks the strength to actually follow through with it. Before the rooster crows, Jesus says, you will deny me three times. And when you hear the phrase childlike dependence, the thought might be for you that I need a mindset shift. Okay, I need to try harder at this next time. I want to have a childlike dependence on God and I look at my relationship with Christ today and I think, man, you know what? 
It just doesn't measure up. I know that I've failed already today. And I go to bed and I think, oh my goodness, how could I be such an idiot? You know what I need to do? I'm going to have to try harder tomorrow. God demands more from me, and I need to grab hold as hard as I can and try better tomorrow. And in your mind, you think, this is Christianity. This is what it really is. It is pushing harder and harder and harder, beating myself and whipping myself because I'm just not measuring up, being remorseful and lamenting, and thinking i got to do better tomorrow never realizing that you're once again trying to white-knuckle your own obedience, trying to white-knuckle your own righteous standing before the Lord. And when tomorrow brings about more disobedience, your relationship with the Lord continues to suffer. And you get there and you think, well, now I've done it. This is the point at which the Lord is tired of hearing from me And so your relationship with the Lord grows strained. You begin to distance yourself altogether because you're too ashamed to actually come before the Lord and confess your sin to Him. If He only knew. How can I possibly call myself a Christian and come yet again to God and confess the same sins that I've been struggling with for years on now? Of course, there is a call to obey the Lord, there's no question about that. But the real question is, how does that obedience come about? How is it that you actually come to obey the Lord? What we find out in the Scriptures, it actually isn't through a try-harder-next-time approach. It comes when I'm actually blown away by the fact that God could possibly love me who is a sinner. It comes when I'm actually enamored by the fact that I was falling to the ground and He reached out and He saved me. It comes when we're enamored by the grace that He has given to us in Christ. The trap that we fall into is that when we we think, when, when I mature, I will sin less. When I mature, I will, I will look at these things. I won't, I won't struggle with these big things anymore. I'll struggle with just tiny little things, and they won't really matter that much. Instead of lying, they'll become little white lies, and that, that won't matter as much. Instead of pornography, it'll just be lust inside the mind. That won't matter as much, because I'm more mature. The reality is, when we grow more mature in Christ, our sins grow weightier we begin to realize just what they cost. We actually come to realize what lies they tell us, what pleasures they promise us, and how they never end up fulfilling on the back end. As we grow in maturity, our sins grow weightier. And so it seems that the beginner Christian, when we're mature Christians, we look at the things that they're struggling with and they, we think, if they only knew, it gets harder. A friend of mine reached out to me this week and 
he was telling me how much the Lord had done for him in his life and what the last few months and years have actually done in his walk with Christ. And he sent me his written testimony. He was going to deliver this before a church, and he, he wanted me to read it. And uh, it detailed his addiction to pornography, his workaholism, and his pride. And I want to read parts of his, his letter. I got permission from him to do so, but I want to read parts of his letter to you. And it's a little bit lengthy, but I think, I think you can follow along. He says this, I would tell my family that the 80 hours I worked each week was to provide for them, to be able to give them the best. But it was for my pride. I worked hard to buy the nicest houses, the cars, clothes, jewelry, and on and on. I never found the satisfaction that I was looking for. My relationship with my wife and family were falling apart, and I was doing it to myself because I believed in my own abilities and not the goodness of God. I began to struggle with anxiety, falling deeper into my pornography addiction, and eventually with suicidal thoughts. I sat in church week after week under the weight of conviction that I needed to confess to my wife, but I was terrified that I would destroy her. Looking back now, I can see that Satan was doing everything he could to keep me trapped in the bondage of my sin and fear. But for my, my friend, things eventually broke. He confessed to his wife because he had to come to the realization that living righteously is not merely making the right decisions. It's owning up to your sin. Laying hold of the forgiveness that can only be found in Christ. See, it's that moment when you're in a free fall. And you realize God is the only thing that kept me from hitting the ground. He had every right to let me hit the ground, but instead, he saved me. When you're blown away by the mercy of God, that he has extended to you, your desires for sin dissipate. And you start to realize that they don't satisfy like the Lord actually does. And all that leads you to do is then continue to confess sin after sin after sin because you realize it's in the humility that following Christ actually is. When my friend confessed to his wife all that he had done, she confessed to, that she'd been having an affair with a friend of theirs. And so he goes on in his letter and he says, In the past... I would have let this destroy me. But God in His goodness was there with me. And I was able to forgive my wife and our friend and share with them how God had worked in my life over the last year. He sat down with both of them and told them His testimony. Can you imagine what that's like? In reality, these moments in our life where sin brings us to our lowest point. As it is here with Peter and his disciples, they're about to run away from the cross. Again, they've seen all the miracles. They've been a part of the whole ministry. There's no aspect of Jesus' life that Peter does not know. He's seen it all, and he's done it all. 
but at the moment where his life is required of him. It doesn't matter. He's going to be brought to his lowest point. And it's at that moment when he is running the farthest away that he'll turn around and he'll look towards Calvary and there he will see the Lord dying on the cross, saving him from the very sin that he's running to. It's at the lowest point in life that he turns back to Christ and he realizes it's at that moment that I'm really a disciple. Dependence on the forgiveness that God gives us is discipleship. I love this little line in the middle of this passage that we will just miss if we don't think about it. It's in verse 32. Jesus says, But after I'm raised up, I will go before you to Galilee. Think about that for just a second, what Jesus is actually telling his disciples. You're going to run off. You're going to leave me alone to suffer at the hands of the Romans. After all I've done for you. Then what does he turn around and tell them? Does he tell them, stay gone. I don't want to see you again. After you're done with that, after you're done with your running, after you're done with your, your fleeing, after you're done with your denial, after you're done with all those things, meet me in Galilee. Meet me in Galilee. In the Gospel of Matthew, Galilee represents light. It represents discipleship. It represents following the Messiah. Jerusalem represents darkness. It represents rejection. It's where they crucify the Messiah. The crowd that's celebrating him when he rides in on the donkey, those are Galileans. The crowd that's chanting crucify him, those are people from Jerusalem. Remember in Matthew 14, 4, uh, chapter 4, verses 15 and 16, the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, the way of the sea beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles, the people dwelling in darkness have seen a great light. For those dwelling in the region of the shadow of death, on them light has dawned. Galilee place where the Messiah's community is, where people follow him and believe, means a couple of things for us. Jesus knows that his death is not the end of the road for him. Yeah, they're going to kill me, but then meet me in Galilee. <laughs> it's not what dead people say. But, but perhaps more importantly for us, he knows that the fear that the disciples have, that Peter's own denial of him, is not the end of the road for them either. He's compelling them, meet me in Galilee, where their discipleship journey will actually begin. That's where they get to Galilee, and he actually gives to them the Great Commission, go and tell everyone of the forgiveness that they have in Christ. This is the good news of the gospel. That Christ died for you, that he was pierced for your transgressions. That on him was all of the chastisement that we deserved. He bore the wrath that we deserved, that you deserved, that I deserved for us, and offers us forgiveness of sin. You see, Jesus is actually compelling you to go with him to Galilee. But it's not at the point where you come clean, it's not at the point where you're at your best. Surely God wants my best. I gotta, I gotta wait until I'm all cleaned up, and I gotta come to Christ. That's not what he's asking for. He's actually wanting you at the bedrock bottom. Because there, 
you have nowhere else to turn. And it's there that your dependence on him for entrance into the kingdom is magnified. So often we come into churches and, and we think to ourselves, if they only knew what was deep in here, I wouldn't be welcome. But I'm here to tell you, if you only knew what is deep inside here, you wouldn't listen to me. The thing that unites all of us together as Christians is that all of us were plummeting to the bedrock bottom, and the only reason we're in the kingdom at all is because he reached out his hand and he saved us. And so we live, we move, we breathe in that reality. Complete and total dependence on Christ for everything. Peter doesn't have it, but he will find it. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I pray for every heart in this room that we would be transformed all together by your mercy that you've shown to us in Christ, by the grace that you have given to us in salvation from our sins. May we be united in that fact. That above all else, you did not leave us in our sin, but you sent Christ to save us. So I pray that each and every one of us in this room would just come clean. That we would both confess to you and we would confide in others the struggles that are deepest and dearest to us. That we may experience not only salvation, not only the forgiveness that you provide, but we may experience the comfort in the body by seeing people who are also called by your name who represent you to us, wrap their arms around us and encourage us. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.